everyone to um, part two of Recession Proof Your Sales series. Uh, so the goal of this series and the show and this podcast is to um, help sales professionals, sales leaders, entrepreneurs, basically whoever has sales as such an important and integral part of their vision and their business. Uh, we want to provide you with the most cutting edge insights, tools, techniques to help you advance in an ever competitive world. Uh, my guest today is Matt Dixon. Uh, where do I start? So Matt is considered the foremost, one of the foremost experts in sales effectiveness, um, customer service, and customer experience. He is the co-author of three books, The Challenger Sale, The Effortless Experience, and The Challenger Customer. And The Challenger Sale has sold over half a million copies worldwide and was the uh, one of the number one bestsellers for Amazon and the Wall Street Journal. He has also had over 20 articles published in uh, Harvard Business Review, and he is now the chief product and research officer, uh, officer of a uh, AI-based business, Tether, which is involved, I believe, in uh, customer experience and using AI for that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and we are looking forward to hearing your insights and experience and advice around how we can improve or at least advance our sales during this recession period. So, um, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for thanks for having me. It's been a long time. Uh, we're former uh, EB colleagues, as uh, maybe some folks uh, here on the line know. And I just my apologies to everyone. Um, had some technical difficulties getting in, but. Uh, uh, we got that sorted out. So I think we're no, no, well, we're glad, glad to have you on. But before we before we kick off, actually, I want to um, I want to just publish a poll because I would be very interested to see um, how many people are familiar with the challenge of sales. So if you could just take five seconds for everyone online to just answer that one simple question, uh, so we can see the, the the knowledge base in terms of the challenge of sale here, and that's will direct our questions. So I'm just going to give it a few more seconds. Yeah, that's great. Super helpful, actually, uh, as we uh, think about the conversation. Absolutely. Um, okay, let's let's end that now. And what I'll do is I'll share the results. So what we see here is, so uh, just under half are not familiar. Twenty percent are, and forty percent are very familiar. So, so that uh, that gives us the dichotomy here. So maybe we should start with explaining the core elements of Challenger because actually the research that you did for this was showing as well why these individuals were so successful even during the last recession. So, um, so clearly this is a, a skill set or a trait that's going to be very critical to sellers as we go forward in what's to be expected another recession. So could you yeah. just break down for us the core elements of what a who a Challenger is and what they do? Sure. Uh, so we um, completed the Challenger research uh, back in, or we, we, I said we started it back in uh, 2008, 2009. So you're quite right. It was, um, I think, probably the last major study of sales effectiveness done in a down economy. Um, mm -hmm. I think the story, as I'll, I'll talk about, you know, here in a moment, and we'll get into this in the discussion, has kind of evolved beyond that. But but I think it's uh, it has relevance now, particular relevance, because of the economy and the sales environment we're in today. Uh, in this uh, pandemic um, that we're all experiencing. The, uh, so the study um, was run when I was back at CEB, which was uh, previously known as Corporate Executive Board, a for-profit research company uh, that we were both um, uh, colleagues at. Um, we did a study um, across uh, several hundred companies around the world, all business-to-business -business companies, um, where we went out and really tried to, remember, remember this was a really tough sales environment back in 08, 09, and we were trying to answer um, a pretty pressing um, question, but kind of a mystery for uh, sales leaders uh, around the world. And at the time, we worked with about five to 700 uh, sales organizations globally, all B2B. The, the question that these sales leaders were grappling with was, um, why in this really tough environment, it, it's, it stands to reason, right, when customers aren't buying, think about the, the Great Recession, think about today and what's going on, that in those environments where customers aren't really buying, um, that most salespeople would miss their number. But um, nevertheless, back in the financial crisis, there was this experience that sales leaders saw in their own organizations where some of their sellers were continuing to bring on deals and be successful 
in this really tough environment, despite all the headwinds that, that the sales team were uh, facing. And so we launched a, a global study, again, all B2B, across industry and across geography, to try to understand what is it that the best salespeople are doing that is leading to uh, selling success in this really tough environment. And what we found uh, was two big things. The first thing we found was that all salespeople fall into one of five statistically defined selling profiles. And we can talk a little bit more about who those profiles are, um, but briefly, they were the challenger, the relationship builder, um, the hard worker, the lone wolf, and the problem solver. Um, again, I'm going to go into too much detail right now about those profiles, but we can circle back to that um, if you like. Um, the ones I'd, um, I'd ask for, just for the purpose of this Cliff's Notes uh, explanation, to focus on the challenger and the relationship builder. So um, keep in mind that at the time, and I think historically in sales, uh, most sales leaders had been really um, uh, in this vein of hiring relationship builder salespeople. You know, it's mm -hmm. the old act that people buy from people, uh, and that selling ultimately is about uh, relationships that you can establish with the customer. Now, the relationship builder salesperson um, is really, in our study, we're not talking about a a you know glad handing sycophant or the 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 salesperson who takes the client and and the client's team to the luxury box at the football match or out for a round of golf. I mean those those things happen. And there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah. that's really what we're talking about. It's not a paper tiger argument, if you will. The the relationship builder salesperson as defined in our study was a salesperson who was really all about selling the way that business to business salespeople have been taught to sell for years by going in and asking big open-ended needs diagnosis questions of the customer to mm -hmm. understand what is it that's keeping the customer up at night? You know, what are the customer's um, objectives? What is their strategy? What are they trying to accomplish? And based on whatever they say, maybe I can attach my value proposition to what the customer needs and then sell them something. So that was the archetype for, for successful selling. Um, that defined really in many respects, this whole solution selling era that we've been in, I would argue, since the 1970s. Mm. Um, that was the prototype of great selling. What we found was um, that person, when you look at sales performance, had the lowest probability of being a high performer. And the, the one who came out head and shoulders above the rest was this challenger profile. Now, who is the challenger? The challenger is um, maybe their colleagues or their, their managers might describe them as sharp-elbowed, opinionated know-it-alls. But I... I'd hesitate to call them obnoxious or rude or aggressive people, they're not. But these are salespeople who are all about bringing new ideas to the customer, all about teaching the customer new things, not, not about what we can do as a supplier, but about new opportunities that the, the customer themselves should be considering. And often these are ideas that the customer has not previously considered. And so they can be surprising and provocative and, uh, and disruptive in some ways uh, for the customer. They can create tension in the sales conversation but that's what the challenger is trying to do. They're trying to get the customer to think differently about themselves and what they can do as a salesperson and as a supplier or a vendor, but more importantly, to get the customer to think differently about their own needs and their own priorities. So if I were to contrast the, the challenger and the relationship builder, the, the, where the relationship builder is all about trying to understand what's keeping the customer up at night to diagnose those needs and respond to those needs, the challenger is much more about showing the customer what should be keeping them up at night to bring those unknown opportunities uh, based on insights that the seller or the seller's organization has access to that customers don't typically have access to. How do I show the customer a new opportunity? Now, this is not free consulting, right? This is about selling things. So we wanna teach them about opportunities that we can solve, of course, right? Um, and so that was, that was really the core argument of, of Challenger is about this different sales profile. Um, as we got into the research, you know, we really started to understand the different skills of the challenger. And we'll talk about those different skills here um, uh, in this discussion. And more importantly, we got to understand the role of the organization in, in developing uh, sales, challenger salespeople. Uh, marketing and product and leadership play a, clear, a critical role here because, you know, for challengers to go out and deliver insight to the customer, they've got to have something insightful to say. Otherwise, they're just annoying. And so it's, it's the job of the company to equip challenger salespeople with those insights. And so that is a, a, a really critical part of the journey. It's not just about training and coaching. It's as much about equipping people with great insights so that they can go forth and challenge uh, the customer's thinking. So probably right. a longer synopsis than you wanted. But <laughs> no, not at all, because this is critical, because I think 
people need to know what those traits are and what it is that they did that separated them. Just for the benefits of those uh, who are listening, um, and it's always good to know, uh, self-assess, where do you fit in amongst those five? So could we just uh, very briefly highlight the others? So you mentioned the, the lone wolf, uh, the hard worker as well. Absolutely. So I'll save the lone wolf for last because it's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> good. so uh, and you'll know why in a moment. Um, so the, the, the problem solver, so let's talk about the problem solver. The problem solver, hopefully folks have a bit of a sense of the relationship builder and the challenger. The problem solver, think of this individual as more of a customer service representative or an implementation specialist in salesperson's clothing. And so what that actually means is that, you know, we know when we sell complex solutions to our customers, um, uh, products and services that require implementation that don't always go as planned, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And problems occur. Um, the customer often will call the salesperson and say, hey, we're having an issue. Like, this isn't working the way you described it in the sales process. Um, we need your help. And in, in many organizations, most salespeople would hand that off to customer success, to customer support, or to the implementation team. The problem solver feels like it's their responsibility to solve those problems. Now, right. customers love that posture. Sales managers, not so much, because they would rather the salesperson hand it off to the right department and get back to selling the next deal. So that's the problem solver. You've got the hard worker. Now, the hard worker, the hard worker does what the, the name suggests. They work very hard. But what that means in sales terms is that they are very activity focused. Uh, so they think of sales as a throughput uh, game. In other words, as long as I feed enough opportunities into the pipeline and I follow the sales process in lockstep, I should hit my number by the end of the quarter or the end of the year. Um, sales is really just about math. And what that means is that um, hard workers, you know, they will knock on more doors, they will call on more customers, they will respond to more, you know, uh, uh, tenders, they will, uh, they will have more uh, activity and opportunities in their pipeline. And sales managers love that because they never have to get on the hard worker's case about not doing enough work. They always right. come in, early, they always stay late, they always put forth that extra effort. So that's the hard worker. Um, the last one, the lone wolf. So the lone wolf, um, I would call the prima donna of the sales organization. It, it, um, some people might think salespeople are all prima donnas. That is not true. These are statistically defined. They're not. Statistically speaking, these are the prima donnas. What that means in sales terms is, they, they don't use the material or collateral marketing has created. Um, they don't put any notes in the CRM system. They're all on, you know, sticky notes on their, uh, you know, next to their computer um, or handwritten notes. Uh, they sell things that you don't even make. And, and then they ask for forgiveness, not for permission, right? And, and in most organizations, we let the lone wolf get away with it because they generate a lot of business. Um, that is not true in regulated industries. So, in regulated industries like banking or uh, pharmaceuticals or medical devices, um, those are organizations that have very low tolerance for lone wolf behavior. But in many other spaces, in manufacturing, in consulting, in law, and there are many other, other spaces, um, advisory services, et cetera, there's quite a bit of technology, quite a bit of tolerance for lone wolf behavior because um, you know, they kill their number. It's the ones who ignore the rules and miss their number who are shown the exits. But the ones who kill their number and bend the rules or ignore the rules, sometimes they're given a bit of a slap on the wrist and you know, ask politely to get back in line. Um, but uh, but you know, they're, not, they're not shown the exits. So. That's, and that's interesting. So the lone wolf, are you saying that this was, they were um, not as high performing as challenger based upon the perspective of the sales managers or was there also a negative impact with the buyers themselves did they have any opinions about lone wolves uh it's a great question so um it's a bit hard for me to to say what the buyer's reaction was to the lone wolf when we looked at performance we looked at um the organization's assessment so when we defined performance we actually looked at it in a, both an objective and a subjective way and i think this is important um, because there are many ways to measure um, the success, you know, the success or the performance of a salesperson. We can look at top line uh, performance. We can look at deal profitability. We can, if you're an account manager, we can look at renewal rate or cross sell and upsell share wallet, things like that. Lots of metrics. And those vary by company and industry and sales role. Um, we asked our participating companies in the survey to give us um, their objective ranking of salespeople by whatever metric they believe is the most important. Some, some profitability, it, it varied. But in ordinal ranking based on objective criteria. But then we asked them to superimpose or overlay a subjective lens. And the reason we did that 
is that we believe organizations know who their best salespeople are. And, and sometimes the numbers don't tell the whole story. Uh, I'll give you two examples. Sometimes there are high performing um, salespeople. I mean, you, you know this because you worked at CV and you were a high performer and you were often given some of the toughest assignments, right? Yeah. And sometimes that doesn't show up in the numbers, but you were given that assignment because you are a high performer, because the organization needed you to turn around a struggling business or to sell a product into a challenging geographic market, uh, for instance. That happens a lot. And so sometimes you would see some folks who were um, ordinarily ranked or objectively ranked lower on the list, but the but we would ask sales leaders to move them up. Matt, you're just uh, right. move them up in the list because if you believe they're a high performer, if they model good behavior and how you want everyone selling, maybe they just have a tough assignment or they're having a tough year, but put them where you think they belong. Secondly, um, the opposite is true as well. Sometimes there are high performing salespeople who they do perform at a very high level, but they don't really bring in the business that we're proud of or that we want. Or maybe they do it in a way that, you know, pardon the expression, but they leave a lot of bodies in their wake. They they frustrate their colleagues. They um, they're always doing it by exceptions. They they buy the business by uh, you know um, uh, offering it at you know for at at cut rate discounts and really eating into profitability. So yes, they sell a lot in in the numbers say they're at the top of the list, but we don't want everyone selling the way that person does. So we then would move those people down. Why, um, that makes sense. We didn't have the visibility into how customers respond, um, but I will tell you, you know, as you know, there was a sequel to the book, and we could if you want, we could do another poll. I don't know that we need to. But yeah. there was a sequel to the book called The Challenger Customer. And, and we looked at the same, you know, if we could profile salespeople and understand these different sales um, uh, archetypes, so these different sales postures, we did the same thing with customers, actually. And what we found was customers also fall into a defined set of profiles. And, um, and we could talk about them. I don't want to go down that path unless you'd like to. But, but um, that was maybe more the customer-facing uh, uh, or the mirror image of the challenger research. Um, so right. that's, don't, I don't have very good insight into how the customer responds to the lone wolf. I mean, I think sometimes that, uh, you know, customers, customers like salespeople who do what they ask them to do, you know, who get them that extra discount, who get them those terms and conditions or, you know, the exception to the policy or the special packaging or delivery or free professional services support or the free pilot. They, customers love that stuff. And, um, and my sense is that lone wolves, having spent some time interviewing them, offer a lot of those things. Now their companies hate it because it, it creates exceptions, it creates um, capability stretch, it makes the product and the implementation team really frustrated that the yeah. lone wolf is out there making things up. But the customer loves it because they feel like I've got an advocate inside the, the vendor organization who's doing whatever I, I want them to do, candidly. So. Right. Okay. So let's let's okay, so that's really interesting. Let's circle back then to the challenger because uh, and by the way, for, for all those attending and listening in right now, feel free to ask questions or we already have one and we'll do our best to answer them towards the end. We'll try and dedicate 15 minutes towards that. Um, and I'll keep the questions anonymous as well. Um, so if we go back to the challenger profile, you talked heavily about delivering insights that was uh, teaching the buyer something that they either didn't know or probably didn't appreciate the magnitude. Yeah. To me, that screams someone that has very high levels of, well, two things. Number one, business acumen, yeah. um, because they've got to know about these businesses in some ways better than the, the buyers themselves who work and live and breathe in those businesses. Yeah. And secondly, um, they have to be able to deliver it in a way that, uh, well, sorry, no, secondly, they have to be able to do a heavy amount of research. Yeah. Um, what else is it about the challenges that made them stand out? What was it on top of just the insights? So there were, um, uh, on the, from a skills perspective, there were three things, but, um, but I think you've hit on some important underlying criteria, if you will. And I, I think, you know, this idea of, um, on the one hand, business acumen, on the other hand, maybe it's uh, storytelling or EQ and the ability to convey ideas in a way that connects with the customer. Right. Um, but from a, a database perspective, what we found is that challengers do three things. Um, so with, a, with apologies to those who know the research really well, you'll remember this. But for those of you who don't, this will be news to you. There are three skills of the challenger. The first one is that they teach the customer something new. Um, so as Mo was saying, they, they will bring that new one insight to the customer. They will bring that unseen opportunity. Maybe it's a, an underappreciated opportunity. Maybe it's just a completely unknown opportunity to make money, to save money, to mitigate risk 
to grab market share, to engage customers or employees in new and different ways. These are not ideas that customers would stumble upon on LinkedIn or, or have found, uh, found online. These are ideas that are, are provocative, they're surprising, and they're unique, often to the supplier who's delivering them. The second thing is um, they tailor that message. So they're very good at taking that insight and making it resonate with different stakeholders around the organization. So we know, for instance, if we're selling a technology solution, we know that um, selling to the IT department is one thing, but we've also got to engage the business user. Maybe that's marketing, maybe it's sales, maybe it's customer service or, or, or R&D. It could be any part of the company. We also need to, we know we need to appeal up and down the food chain. So we've got to speak to the senior buyer. We've got to get the end users bought in. And then we know we've got to talk to legal and procurement and finance and all the sales prevention departments uh, lying in wait. <laughs> and we've got to be able to engage those folks as well. And so the, the challenger is very good at tailoring that insight for those different stakeholders and those different buyers so that they see themselves in the opportunity. And then lastly, um, and this is the one that we get the most confusion or consternation about, is that they're assertive. In the book, we say they take control. So they teach, they tailor, and they take control. Taking control, you know, if you think about this idea of challenger, so I, I find, you know, my experience in challenger has been out for almost 10 years now. Mm. And travel around the world and I talk to um, customer organizations or I talk to uh, sales organizations, or marketing organizations, you name it, about Challenger. And oftentimes I will run into people who are familiar with the title of the book. And, you know, you, when you think about this, the Challenger salesperson, they take control of the sales conversation uh, or take control of the customer conversation. It can be suggestive of a an aggressive kind of sales posture. Combative approach. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a... That's a common misconception about it. It is. It is. And, and arguably, we did it to ourselves by calling it a challenger and saying they should be in control. Though uh, other folks said, oh, let me circle back to that one. Sure. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, um, it is not about being rude or aggressive or obnoxious. As we, I always say, that's a sixth profile called the jerk, and we're not talking about that. Yeah. Uh, challengers are deeply empathetic. They're very professional. They're very respective of the client. They are able to navigate through different cultural contexts, which, you know, if you're selling in Europe, of course, you're encountering a multitude of them. Um, cultures as they present in geographic markets, but also within different companies. One company in the same geographic market could have a very different culture from another. And so challenges are very tuned to that, but they are assertive. And, and what that means is that they hold their ground when the customer pushes back. So an example might be, you know, the customer pushing back on your idea and saying, oh, that doesn't really apply to us. Um, mm. Or about what keeps us up at night the challenger will acknowledge that pushback but then they will defer and they will say you know I, I i don't want to turn this into a lecture by any means but i also know we've only got an hour maybe 45 minutes left and i want to make sure i make good use of your time and i have to tell you let's say i'm selling to a cio um other chief information officers at other companies have found this insight to be pretty eye-opening and so with your permission i'd love to walk through a little bit of it with you I don't want this to be a lecture. I want it to be a discussion. But let's see if we can square the circle and whether it actually applies to your organization. If it doesn't, I'm happy to part ways and, and leave as friends. But I'm convinced that this is going to deliver value. So they acknowledge yeah. the customer pushback, but they hold their ground. The same is true around pricing in terms and conditions. Uh, challengers will always try to get the conversation. Even when the customer wants to go to price, they always try to get back to value. What are the what are other ways that I can deliver more value in our solution? that are candidly going to mean more for you and your business than a discount and are going to be easier for me to secure for you than a discount. And so they hold their ground um, and they do it in lots of different ways. They do it in RFP or tender situations. They do it in many contexts, but, um, but, uh, but they, they are assertive and they do hold their ground. Now, the funny story I was going to tell you is uh, what, what's interesting is when you look at the five profiles, challengers actually, many people also jump to the conclusion that this must mean that having a good relationship with the customer is no longer important. Uh, maybe customers don't care anymore. Maybe they yeah. is not about relationships anymore. And um, that's actually not true. Statistically speaking, challengers minor in relationship building. So they are actually, what that means is they're the second best relationship builders of the five profiles. They spike in challenging, but their secondary posture is that of a relationship builder. But what it tells you is that they, they know they've got to have a good relationship with the customer. The customer's got to like them after all. Then in from mm -hmm. time, you're going to have to do what the customer's asking you to do. Um, the customer asks you to jump, and sometimes, unfortunately, you're going to have to, have to ask how high. Um, and the challenger understands that, but they use the relationship as a means to an end because they know that ultimately what the, what the customer really needs is this insight that I have. Um, what they don't need, uh, or they're not going to be um, 
uh, content with is simply a salesperson who does whatever they ask them to do. And that's more the posture of the relationship builder. They use the relationship as an end unto itself. Now I had a head of sales um, uh, about a year ago who said to me, well, I, and this was one of these heads of sales who had heard the title of the book and had never read it and came to the conclusion this is about it being a used car salesman and it's about being rude and aggressive and obnoxious. And, um, and as we got into the discussion, he said, well, that makes perfect sense. What you're really talking about is a new kind of relationship, a relationship built on insight and business value. And I know, and this is a, a head of sales who buys lots of things, buys CRM systems, buys training services. And he said, as a customer of many suppliers, that is absolutely true. I want my relationships with my salespeople that I, that who sell to me, who sell products and services to me, to be one built on insight and business value. I get that. They said, why did you go with such a controversial title? Why didn't you just call it the new relationship builder? And I said, well, if I called it the new relationship builder, you probably wouldn't have read the book. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> fair enough. So, um, yeah. Agreed. Yeah, relationship 2.0, it wouldn't have made sense. No, uh, no. And, and, it so, and it sounds like, Matt, you're talking about um, uh, a significant amount of confidence that these challenges have. Yeah. And how much of that are traits versus yeah. skills because yeah. yeah the 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 biggest question we get about challenger and i think the the hardest um thing to grapple with is are challengers born or are they made which i think is that nature or nurture um uh, a skill versus a an inherent trait or personality type maybe uh that you're talking about um, what we, when we studied it, um, we did not include personality attributes. So when we studied Challenger, we were looking at skills, uh, behaviors, um, attitudes, knowledge. We were not looking at personality traits. There are many, many studies of sales, um, winning sales personality types. And there are lots of personality assessments of sales candidates that are out there that you can use to screen candidates before they, uh, you know, before you offer them a, a position. Yeah. Um, the hard thing about that is that um, personality-based studies, I think the only way to fix that is through hiring and firing. Um, what we were trying to look at is the set of skills that the average salespeople person could, could learn uh, and could get better at over time. Now, um, you'll know this, but many of your listeners probably don't, is that when we were at CEB, we created a challenger training business. And so that business, which still exists today, it's a company called Challenger Inc., uh, Gardner, mm -hmm. and then spun that business off. It's its own uh, company now. And they work with companies all around the world. And they've got now 10 years of experience having worked with organizations that might have a spike in hard workers or relationship builders. And by the end of a, um, a change management process, including training, focused coaching, and of course, creating those insights, which is absolutely critical um, as part of the journey, that at the end of the experience, they reassess and they find that they haven't changed who these sellers are but they've equipped them with the ability to at least play the part of the challenger when the situation or when the customer demands it. And, uh, and so they've, it's more about adding a new skill to the, to the skill set or a tool to the tool belt than, than about uh, changing personality types, which of course is impossible. Um, so, so that is the, the posture we took. Now I know, uh, or the approach we took, and that's our experience there is that, you know, when you go to roll out challenger, not everyone's going to make it, but the people who don't make it, um, don't make it, uh, it's not that they don't make it because they can't, it's they don't make it because they choose not to. So it's a reason of, of will, not skill. Right. So um, so they, they have looked at this and said, I've been really successful selling the way I've been selling, and I'm more of a relationship builder. I'm more of a hard worker, a problem solver. I'm not going to change the way I sell. Maybe I'll just leave and go find an organization that values me for who I am and what I bring to the table. And that's fine. Um, but uh, that's, that's what we find is that there's usually about a 70% kind of adoption rate. The 30% who don't adopt are either lone wolves and they don't adopt anything you teach them to do. They do it their own way or they're folks who opt out for reasons of will. Now, I will tell you, you, you hit on another important point about business acumen. You know, in many respects, we have found in working with companies who, who rolled out Challenger and struggled for many years to get their reps to be solution sellers. So hiring reps who could ask those deep, incisive questions and then be able to attach the supplier's solution to the customer's need. Um, on the fly, that that is actually a much harder thing to be good at. Um, mm. And it's why for many reasons, for many years, um, B2B companies have really struggled to get solution selling right, because it does require that on the fly kind of thinking by the salesperson. As I said before, a lot of challenger is about formulating insight at the company level, 
and then teaching salespeople how to use that insight to sell. And if you think about it in a moment, a lot of the hard work of creating those insights, and there were, I see a question in the Q&A about creating insights, that actually is the hardest part of Challenger, I would say, and we can talk about that and what is an insight and how do you create these insights. But yep. once you've done so, in many respects for the average salesperson, it's actually quite a bit easier than needs diagnosis because now I've got the insight and now I just need to think about how does that insight apply to this company in this industry, in this geographic market versus another company in another market or industry. And so I can tailor the insight at the margins, but I don't have to on the fly come up with a solution to any, any problem the customer articulates during my needs diagnosis session. So. Right. Right, and I definitely want to address this question that's been brought up uh, towards the end because it's a very, very good one. And in fact, it's one I hear the most, actually. Yeah, I don't know yeah. about you, but um, it, is the- <laughs> it, is a t- it is a tough one. So, so, so let's, let's, um, let's ask the question that I think anyone who's listening to this is probably really, really thinking about, which is how do you become a challenger? You know, what skills do you need to double down on and spend time improving? in order to become a successful challenger? So uh, there are a number of them. I will point to um, two that I think uh, can get people started maybe. Um, the, first one is, um, the first one is to be more hypothesis led. So let me explain what I mean by that. Right. A challenger sales conversation, again, we'll talk more about the insights and, and what a challenger insight is and, and what it sounds like when, when presented in a sales meeting. Um, but it, one of the, Really interesting and unique parts about a challenger conversation is it does not start with an open-ended question. What's keeping you up at night? It doesn't start with an exposition about your company's history and values and your brag sheet of logos and your your map with all the dots on it to show how many offices you have. Um, It is not about you. It is about the customer. And so one of the first things you see in a challenger conversation is what we call the warmer. The warmer is the opportunity for the challenger to articulate, typically on a slide or two, that they've done a bit of homework. And let's imagine um, I'm selling to a customer I've, I've never met with before. I've never met with anybody in their company before. It's completely new. Um, the way most salespeople engage will be, tell me all about you. Tell me all about your business. Tell me all about what keeps you up at night. What are your, your goals and objectives and so on and so forth. The challenger will think about and do some homework around what are the things keeping other customers up at night other customers who are similar to this customer. Maybe they're in the same industry, maybe they have the same job, maybe they are in the same geographic market. And so I'm gonna articulate in a couple of slides my best guess at what I think the things are that this customer is, uh, is dealing with right now. Now the goal there is not to be clairvoyant and it's not to be 100% right, but the goal is to create a different feel in the sales conversation. What you're, when you do that, what your customer's really thinking is, Thank God you didn't ask me what's keeping me up at night because I hate that question. It's a lot of work for the customer, right? And you've done some legwork. You've done some homework. So you hit on this earlier. That is when you get down to skills, that's about doing your homework and doing research and pre-visit preparation and being able to come in with a point of view or at least a best guess at what you think the customer is dealing with right now, even if you've never spoken with them before. Now, many salespeople will think that sounds awfully presumptuous for me to come in and uh, postulate or, or um, suggest yeah. what the customer up and then without asking them. But again, I would think about it from the customer's perspective. They, their job is not to be a salesperson, that's your job. And so don't ask them to teach you everything about their business, do some homework first, come in with a point of view. They will appreciate that and they will respect that if for no Absolutely. other then it's different from the average sales conversation they have. So skill number one. The second thing I would ask you uh, people to do is from a skill perspective or encourage them to do is, um, you need to get comfortable with tension. Um, and that is a hard thing to get good at. Yeah. It is a thing to your point before that comes naturally to some people. It is a thing that makes other people very, very uncomfortable. And, uh, but you got to think about um, how do I create tension? How do I bring up ideas that are not going to just surprise the customer, but uh, offend the customer, be overstating it, but are going to surprise them in a way that's sometimes doesn't come across in a positive way. So many salespeople are looking for affirmation in the sales conversation. They want the customer to nod their head. They want them to agree with everything they're saying. Um, What challengers know is you don't really have intellectual engagement until you've said or shown the customer, said something or shown the customer something that causes them to blink, that causes them to do a double take, you know, to scratch their head a bit, to lean forward in their chair, 
and to ask or nowadays lean forward on the Zoom, uh, but, but to get the customer to engage intellectually. That is what challengers live for because now they know I've got the customer's attention. Now, again, it comes naturally to challengers. It does not come naturally to relationship builders, for instance. And so one of the things I'd encourage people to think about is don't go try your challenger skills with your good customers, the ones who know you and like you and buy a lot from you. Use it first with those customers who aren't calling you back anymore or the customers who've said no to you because you've got nothing to lose. And it creates a safe zone of practice for you to start to get comfortable with that. And what you're going to find is some of those customers will see a different person. They'll see a, a person who's, who's um, uh, being a bit more provocative and being a bit more uh, incisive with, uh, with the ideas they're putting forth. And some of those people will come back from the dead and they'll make time for you. And then once you have a bit of success with those lost deals or those stalled accounts, then start using some of those skills on your current customers. So um, that's just a couple of tips that I found people have found to be successful and useful. Uh, so that's incredibly valuable. And, and actually one of the things that certainly from my experience that I would share and something you said about a year ago in a, in a talk that you gave, which I took to heart long before and it helped me um, because confidence level can, um, well, it's very hard for a lot of salespeople to have that kind of confidence when you're standing toe to toe with someone that has 20, 25, 30 years experience at the top of their field. And um, one of the things that I realized, and you mentioned this in, in the in the recent uh, talk is, you know, us as salespeople have these kind of conversations with our buyers probably more times in one week or one month than those buyers would have with their peers in a whole year. Yeah, so actually, you are privy to far more information about what they really should be thinking about than they would. So, so salespeople should absolutely have that kind of confidence when they think about that reality. You're right. And, and by the way, the other thing I'll tell you is the, um, the, um, a, a quick story here. I, I uh, met at a conference um, a sales leader who uh, cut his teeth at IBM. So he grew up selling, um, actually selling desktop computers way back in the day for IBM. And yeah. he told me the story. I gave a challenger talk and he came up to me and he said, um, he told me the story of his scariest customer, who was, uh, this was the CIO for a major retailer in North America. And this guy scared the heck out of him. I mean, he right. was intimidating. He was, you know, very aggressive, very direct. And, um, and the, this guy came up and he said, you know, when I was an, a young salesperson, maybe with two years of experience selling desktop computers to CIOs, this client scared the heck out of me. IBM had decided to host a CIO summit uh, one year for CIOs to get together, much in the same way we did at CEB, um, yeah. for their clients to get together and talk about what you know about issues and, and exchange best practices, as well as to learn from IBM experts. Um, and uh, they sent out invitations to all their clients. And this this person told me he said I, I sent an invitation to the CIO at this big retailer, and he never replied. And so I assumed he was busy and he wasn't interested in coming, and I never followed up. So the summit happens, and the next day, um, I get a phone call from the CIO who says, uh, orders me down to his office uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And so nervously, he flies down Whoa, to him, okay. meets with him. And imagine, you know, the scenes of like Dr. Evil and the, you know, <laughs> <laughs> okay. that's kind of like what this guy, this vision I have, this guy, he's sitting in his high back chair and he's got his, the salesperson comes into his office. He's sort of sitting there nervously with his briefcase in his, in his lap. And the CIO is barking at somebody on the phone, spins around in his chair and says, why didn't you schedule time with me at, to debrief with me on the summit and what happened there? And he said, well, I, you never responded to the invitation, so I assumed you were busy and not interested and it was a waste of your time. And he said, let me tell you something. He said, that box on my desk, the, lap, the desktop computer you sold me and everyone else in my company, I can buy those from anybody. What I, hide, what I do business with IBM for is what's in there. And he points to the person's head. And this is a 23-year-old salesperson. Wow. He said, I do business with you because of what you know that I need to know. You might, you're going to meet with more CIOs just like me in a week, as you said, Mo, than I'll meet with all year. And at the summit, you had an opportunity to meet with hundreds of your clients. I rely on you for that insight. Yeah. I can buy the computer from anybody. And so I thought that was really powerful because he's and what he said is that that changed his entire sales posture and career early at a very early age, because what he realized was uh, it is it is wrong and presumptuous to think that you're going to walk in as a young a young person early in their career with not as much experience as that person sitting on the other side of the desk and to tell them their business, but it's not presumptuous at all to recognize 
that you have insight that is valuable to that customer. And so don't think of yourself as a subject matter expert who's going to tell the customer their business. Think of yourself as a window into the outside world. What are the conversations you're having that, boy, this other customer wishes that could be a fly on the wall to listen to those conversations? Share some of those insights and perspectives. That's what customers really want. In fact, you know, we found, you'll remember in the research that um, uh, we found that 53%, when you get down to the final two competitors in a, in a pursuit, what separates winners from losers is not product quality or price um, or uh, any of brand or reputation in the marketplace. What separates the winner from loser is that the winning supplier delivers insight that is valuable to the customer in their business. Um, the losing supplier usually steals hours of the customer's life that the customer yeah. will never get. And so customers want that insight. They want you to challenge their thinking. It may not always come across that way. They may respond negatively. They may respond skeptically. But deep down, that is why they pick one supplier over the next. And look, in a world today where customers are learning on their own, most of our customers are very far down the purchase journey before they pick up the phone and call us. They've yeah. done their research. They've already made up their mind who you are, what you're there to sell them. Are you on my short list or not? And I've already decided what you can do for me. And, but in that world, what customer what helps salespeople avoid that price-driven sale and get in early and cap, you know, help shape the customer's buying criteria is their ability to establish a relationship based on insight that they would call you up and say, you know, we we're thinking about making this kind of move in our business, but before we do anything, before we call any other salespeople, I'm going to call Mo because every time we sit down, he teaches me something new that I, I'd not considered before. And he's kind of my, he's my ears on the outside world or my eyes on the outside world. And, uh, and we need to have that conversation first before we move a muscle. That's the kind of uh, insight based relationship that we want to establish with our clients. Yeah, right. I mean, gosh, I'm, I'm torn because I'm conscious of time. I wish we had more time. And you've brought up something that I, I, I've been planning to ask, but I'm also painfully aware of this question that we've had from someone that uh, I also, do you think we have time to address both, which is the 53%? What are the kind of the quick things that make up that 53% sales, salespeople? Because I think people that are listening are going to really want to know that and also answer this question of what a, a typical commercial insight discussion would look like. Sure, yeah, so we yeah. Have, so let's, yeah, let's start with the 53% then. What, what is it that buyers liked about those 53% that made them want to work? Yeah, so we, we actually, um, just to give you a sense of how we did this research, we, we went to customers um, and asked them to think about the last purchase of significance that they were a part of. Now, we're not talking about you know, um, paper for the copy room or, or, you know, coffee filters for the coffee room. We're talking about, sure. you know, systems and, and consulting services and things that, you know, the, it requires some consensus building and some internal debate and discussion. There may be risky solutions or expensive or disruptive solutions. Think about one of those purchases and we asked them to compare the, the winning supplier, uh, the person, the company that won the deal to the company that came in second place and to do so yeah. across a range of attributes, their relative brand and reputation in the marketplace the relative or at least perceived quality of their products and services, their value to price ratio. Um, right. And then we asked them a whole series of questions about what it was like to do business with these suppliers and how they compared one to the next. And what we found was when we regressed all the data that 53% uh, of what drove the customer's decision about one uh, going one supplier or the other was a function of the sales experience, not perception of product or brand quality. Not um, brand, not reputation or or um, uh, or brand recognition in the market. Not price to value ratio. That's interesting because those are all the typical things that a salesperson believes should be the things that make them. Yeah, they, winning. Yeah. You know, I want to be clear; those are, are very important things, but they um, they will get you to the shortlist, but they won't win you the deal. And right. so this was the difference between the first and second place finisher. And I always tell companies. If you don't have a good brand or reputation, if your product doesn't work and if it's overpriced, you should go fix those things first. But once you do, you are now in a place for the customer where they perceive you as the same as everybody else. Right. And so once you get down to the short list and once you're in competition and you're the, in the final two, what is going to put you over the, the, um, the line and win you the deal is your ability to bring insight. So it's not any kind of sales experience. What was quite interesting is, and keep in mind, the Challenger research was a study of salespeople, and we found that best salespeople lead with insight. This was a totally different study of what drove loyalty and purchase preference from customers, business customers. And we found is 53% of it was a function not of what you're selling, but of how you're selling it. And to, to the point, it's not any kind of sales experience. It was a sales experience that brought new ideas to the table, 
that showed the customer uh, or educated the customer about new issues and outcomes, helped them think through alternate ways of solving for business problems, um, helped the customer see risks and pitfalls down the road, or maybe helped the customer look around corners in a way that the, the, the customer hadn't realized or hadn't fully appreciated. It was an insight-based sales conversation that drove that level of loyalty and that level of differentiation in the right. eyes of the customer. So two separate studies, one of salespeople, one of customers, all both pointing to the same thing. Right, so that's interesting because that, that almost feels like it's taking trusted advisor to a completely new level, actually. You know, um, it's, so it's, it, it, and it's what you're quite right. I had this, this came up in a, a, a podcast I actually did last week with, a, with another organization and, and they brought up this idea of trusted advisor. And I think you're right. When you get down to it, we are kind of talking about building a trusted advisor relationship for the customer. But I think in many respects, we as, as salespeople have fallen into this this mode of thinking that trusted advisor means simply doing whatever the customer wants. Exactly, yeah. That I would describe as more of an order taker. A trusted yeah. advisor is somebody that the customer sees as an extension of their team. It's somebody that they're gonna call for their opinion or their point of view because they know you have insight to share. That is a very different kind of posture. And sometimes those insights are provocative, disruptive, and, and shake the customer outside of their mental model. Um, but that is a trusted advisor relationship. So I, th I think you're spot on in yeah. And to be clear, I hope I'm not stepping, stepping out of line here, but for, for those who are listening, um, that they all probably, and I know this happened to me at the beginning, you're automatically thinking, well, I, I've, got to be, I've got to be of such a stature that they're going to call me straight away. But actually, that's an iteration step, right? Don't worry about that just yet. Focus more on what value in terms of insight and advice can I bring to the table at the beginning just to get them to listen to what I have to say and therefore have that constructive discussion about their business and our solution. Don't think about becoming someone down the line that they will call when they have an idea and they want to run, when they want to run it by you. That's going to take time. That's going to take delivery of trust. That's going to take building of trust. And you're going to be investing in your brand as a salesperson because yeah. what you want is for those customers when they're on LinkedIn, uh, when they're uh, at a conference, when they're at a round table, you know, a gardener round table or, you know, what you yeah. round table, to say to their, to their peers at other companies, oh, if you're looking at this kind of solution, you've got to call that. Let me give you the name of the person that I call. And I've, this person knows this space cold and they taught me a lot that I had underappreciated. That's the person. So then you start to establish a brand and then you generate that, that, um, uh, that inbound demand from customers who seek your expertise and yeah. seek your perspective. It doesn't happen overnight, though, to your point. No, it took time, right? So, so uh, good. Well, so we've we got about 10, nine, 10 minutes left, and uh, I want to ask this question from someone who's telling me, and it, it's, it's the one I hear the most, um, and, uh, and I think, it, yeah, let's address it. So, so the question is, I, I have tried very hard to implement Challenger, but it is very tough to put in practice, especially developing commercial insight. Do you have any suggestions or tips? Yeah. So a couple of, um, uh, a couple of suggestions, uh, reading suggestions maybe. So for this particular um, uh, participant, uh, but, but really for everybody on the line today, um, I'd encourage you not just to read Challenger. You know, Challenger was a book that was about sales, but it was sort of accidentally also about marketing because what we found was yeah. best, best organizations equip their salespeople with insight. And that's typically the role of marketing to create those insights. But Obviously, product leadership and sales leadership and um, uh, other folks around the uh, the table have have a role in that. Um, what we uh, we in the sequel book, the Challenger Customer, that was a book that was much more purposefully about sales and marketing. Yeah. And so, if you haven't read it already, um, there is at least half of that book gets really into the guts of how to build commercial insight. What it is, what it's not. Um, how do you build that insight? Where do you find that insight? How do you validate that insight? What are, the, what are the different types of commercial insight that you might present to a customer? Um, and then how do you atomize that insight so that you can use it for lead generation? So you can share um, bite-sized insights on LinkedIn or on other places to teach customers into the sales funnel. And so there's a specific way to do that that we, that we recommend. And so that is a very much an insight building um, uh, roadmap or, or toolkit. So you, you haven't read the Challenger customer, that's the first thing you should do. But what, I, what I'll tell you is at the highest level, you know, uh, and uh, this goes back to a question you asked before about that flow and that choreography of the, the challenger conversation. Um, there is a distinct pattern that we found, and, and we didn't invent this. 
we found great companies already uh, equipping their salespeople with insight. And then we back solved right. to, to create this roadmap that other companies could follow. So, you know, we, we just gave a name to it. We, we can't take credit for this. In the same way, we can't take credit for inventing Challenger. It was just what best salespeople were already doing. Um, and so what we find is the Challenger choreography has a specific arc and flow to it. So it starts with that warmer we talked about before. That's the, the thing that my hypothesis about, if I were to ask you what's keeping me up at night, what do I think would be on that page? And I'm just going to take a step and it creates a different feel immediately. The next step is the reframe. The reframe is your opportunity to put that unseen opportunity, that unknown opportunity, underappreciated opportunity on the table, which causes the customer to do a double take. It causes them to stop in their tracks. They lean forward, they engage intellectually, and then they ask hard questions because they probably don't believe it. And so then you've, the next step is, um, uh, is rash, we call it rational drowning, which is really just the, the process of um, backing up rationally or intellectually and with data that what you just said is factually accurate. You know, if you're going to say something out there and provocative, you've got to back it up with data. But the next step is you've got to then make your customer care about it. And we know even in, in business to business, we like to think that people only make decisions based on, on numbers and economics. They make they, they might justify with those things, but they make decisions on emotion. Absolutely. So yeah. we've got to dial up what we call the emotional impact. So that's the next piece. They've got to see themselves in this insight. It may be factually accurate. Maybe you overcame their intellectual objection. But do you, have you made them really care about it and want to do something about it? The next step is the new way forward. It's, it's at this step that we talk about what it would mean for the customer's business to solve for that reframe opportunity. If it's a new way to make money, a new way to save money, a new way to mitigate risk or steal market share, what would it mean for their business to solve for that? Now, the important part about that piece is it's supplier agnostic. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your products and services. It is articulated in customer terms. And so... What, one of the things that drives me crazy in sales is, is at this moment in the sales conversation that usually a salesperson will use their ROI calculator. You know, here's the return on investment, but the return on investment is nothing more than the return on buying your products or buying your, buying your services. What we're talking about is different. Uh, we call it the, the ROPE calculator. The ROPE stands for return on pain eliminated. Now, mm. it, it's a catchy acronym, but think about it for a moment. A ROPE calculation is articulated in customer terms and it is supplier agnostic. It's only a happy coincidence at the very end that you are the only supplier who can actually solve that problem and deliver on the rope calculation for the customer. And that's the very last step in the, in the challenge of choreography where you talk about your solution, what you want to sell the customer. At that point, you have taught the customer about an opportunity they didn't realize. You've backed it up with data. You've made them care about it. You've quantified the impact for their business. And then you've shown them how your solution is the only solution in the market that can solve for that opportunity. Now, the most important parts to get right in this choreography are two. The first one that you start with when you're building this, and it's why a lot of companies struggle, is, the, is actually the last box, is defining your solution. Now, to be clear, it's not simply defining your solution, because we all know how to talk about our solution. It's actually specifically answering the question, why should the customer buy your solution instead of your competitor's solution? Right. What is it about your solution that is unique? Is it unique? Is it differentiated? Is it credible? Is it uh, something you can quantify? Um, and you've got to be able to nail that. And, and what I find a lot of companies struggle with is they immediately go to general notions of differentiation. Well, what makes us really unique is that we're more customer-centric than our competitors. Or, You're talking about unique connected to the insights and the whole chain correct, to start correct. off. Well, but, right. but even, even before you try to connect it to the chain, just ask yourself that question. Why should the customer do business with you instead of your competitors? And if you find yourself answering that question by saying, well, because we're more innovative, because we're more socially responsible, because we are more um, uh, customer centric, then you're not mm. really the question. The question, the answer to that question is a unique attribute or capability of your solution that your competitors don't have. And then the next question you have to ask is, well, what would have to be true for the customer to want to pay us for that unique benefit? Um, so um, an example might be that you have broader distribution than any of your competitors, or it might be that your, um, your system uh, has greater uptime uh, than any of your competitors, mm -hmm. or that it's cheaper. Uh, you know, there are lots of unique benefits and things that are truly distinctive and credible and valuable but you have to give the customer a reason to want to pay for those things. That's the reframe. So that's where you put the unseen opportunity on the table to get the customer to, to care about it. Um, right. 
I'll give you, if you have time, I know we've got two minutes left, I'll give a very quick example. Uh, yeah, yeah, please. Okay, perfect. So um, this is the one I tell in the intro when we are when time is of the essence. That's the short version. Okay. <laughs> and it's a great um, uh, company with its roots uh, in Europe, uh, which is Volvo Trucks. We all know sell the long haul trucks. Now, uh, Volvo is a premium brand in trucking, um, and they compete with uh, Freightliner and International Truck and Engine and Mack Trucks and a lot of big uh, suppliers out there. Um, what uh, they, as a premium brand, they would go in and they would talk about the attributes of their products. So for instance, I would uh, come in and if you were a fleet operator, I would say, well, Volvo um, has the largest windshield of any truck in its class. It's got the most comfortable seat for the truck driver and the most comfortable sleeper cabin for the, for the operator. Um, it's also got an early warning system that tells you when critical systems are in need of repair. Um, now, what typically happens when Volvo leads with those attributes, uh, is the customer asks, how much do those things cost? And yeah. when they find out it costs 25% more than the other trucks, they say, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I don't need a comfortable seat or a big windshield for that purpose. After a lot of work, um, Volvo um, uh, retooled in uh, their entire uh, conversation, not to lead with what made Volvo unique, but to lead to what makes Volvo unique. So here's how they do it now. Mm. They sit down with the fleet operator and they engage in a conversation about truck driver turnover. So specifically driver attrition and the cost of having to backfill and rehire and replace truck drivers in your fleet who have left for another company. And this is a huge problem in trucking, even in this current environment uh, that we're in right now in high unemployment, truck drivers in most fleets suffer from very high turnover of drivers. And so Volvo comes in, they say, you know, I'd like to talk to you about driver churn or driver attrition and what that means for your business. The first thing the customer does is a double take because they don't know why a truck salesperson wants to talk about an HR issue. Um, but they have that conversation. They quantify the impact. They talk about how what the, the fleet operator's turnover is and how much it costs to hire a new driver, train them on the equipment, certify them, um, you know, pay a higher price, how much it costs when you have unopened routes and unopened, yeah. all these things. And then they talk about um, what it would mean to reduce turnover. Well, it would save the truck driver quite a bit of money. Uh, and then they say, do you know that based on our research, uh, fleet operators uh, who drive, who operate Volvo trucks have 25% lower driver turnover than any other uh, fleet out there. Why is that? Because Volvo is a truck that is preferred by the professional truck driver. Why? Because it's got the biggest windshield in its class. It allows the driver to see more of their surroundings. It's got the most comfortable seat and sleeper cabin, which shows the truck driver that you as a fleet operator are invested in their health and well-being and their comfort. Um, and it's got an early warning detection system. So it completely eliminates those Friday nights when the truck driver is sitting on the roadside waiting for service or for a tow truck um, uh, in emergency service on their vehicle and they're missing their son or daughter's football match, right, um, back home. And so those problems go away. And so this is a truck that shows that you're invested in the truck driver, in their well-being, and you recognize that being a truck driver is hard. It's a hard work-life balance. It's a hard job. And so you are showing that you care about their safety, their comfort, and their work-life balance. And so um, that solves a much bigger problem that suddenly doesn't, the customer is suddenly not asking about how much it costs because you're solving a problem that the other trucks can't solve, which is an HR problem, a turnover problem. So That's incredibly powerful because basically what you've just done there is it's not about trucks. It's about the trucks right. being a tool. That's to right. achieving an outcome, and that's the business, right? They're not in the business of driving trucks, they're in the business of transferring goods and having people do that. So that's incredibly, I feel like we need to invite you again to talk about Challenger customer because uh, yeah. people are going to be, you know, the buyers, the buyers' mindsets are changing, especially during the recession, right? There's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety, and uh, this, the way people make decisions, particularly if you're going to be a challenger, um, is there's a fine balance there between pressuring that anxiety too high, but they're also going to be speaking to other people internally because they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to. They don't want to go against the grain. Um, first, right now, you're right. But for, but 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 you're not going to get a chance to have that kind of discussion with the buyer until you get the commercial insight and the challenger elements right. So hopefully that's answered questions for a lot of people who are listening to this. And hopefully that's answered answer the person's question then. If, it, if there's more to it, feel free to ask again and then we'll, we'll find a way to get that answer for you. Um, we're slightly over time. I don't know if there's anything else you would like to leave with in terms of the challenger, but I think we've covered it pretty, 
No, there's quite I'm a bit of there's quite a bit of reading out there on uh, on Java, <laughs> and um, you know a number of tools in the back of the both books actually that I encourage folks to look at a behavioral interviewing guide so that you can. Yeah. Hire. Of course, if you're interviewing for a new sales role in your organization, better to screen for those challenger um, uh, you know uh, mindsets than to to try to uh, develop those in existing salespeople who may not be cut from that cloth, um, and so. A lot of useful tools in the back of those books. I'd encourage um, everyone to go check those out. Great, yeah. So the two books are The Challenger Sale and The Challenger Customer. Um, and, and before we leave it, um, how, how can people follow you uh, and get updated on, on some of the things that you're doing? Yeah, so I'm on um, on LinkedIn. So if everyone, uh, folks want to send me a LinkedIn invitation, mention that you were, um, you know, you were in the session and, uh, and how you heard about it. And um, let's keep the dialogue going. Um, and, Thank you. Um, and then I'm on I'm on Twitter as well, so uh, I don't know if that's your thing, but if people are, then I'm at uh, Matthew X Dixon is my uh, Twitter handle if people want to follow me. So Matthew X Dixon, great, uh, Matt. Thank you so much for sharing your time to to helping those who are involved in sales, especially during these tough times that we're expecting to come around. And um, hopefully, we've answered everyone's question. I want to thank you again, and uh, I wish you a pleasant day.